Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, uh, abundantly decorated um, with memes and and pictures and and student art. And uh, we are excited today to have a guest. It's been a while since we've had a guest, um, or it was a while uh, since we've had a guest with COVID, but we had last time Dr. Zima on music. And we have another guest today. And uh, a guest I've had for class, Mike, did you? you uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Okay, I'm trying not to give away who it is yet, but uh, someone I've had for class, which is always somewhat intimidating <laughs> because uh, we weren't always the smartest when we were younger, Mike, were we? Yeah, I've, nobody, nobody ever accused me of being smart, ever, yeah. <laughs> ever. <laughs> but uh, I, I think what will be a fun topic that I'll let Mike explain, <clears throat> but first I'll let our guest introduce himself. He's joining us. Um, from, was it about a half hour north? Yep. From about a half hour north. And why don't you go ahead and uh, you can tell our listeners who you are and a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks, Wade and Mike. It's really an honor to be here. I'm Ken Cherney. I teach uh, Old Testament and systematic theology at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Uh, I edit our theological journal, the Wisconsin Lutheran Quarterly. And uh, my most significant accomplishment is... Uh, convincing my wife to marry me and as a result i have seven grandchildren and nice. uh you know uh you asked me earlier wade what you should call me and you know the, the normal rule is you call somebody by the highest title that they've got but you are not going to call me grandpa <laughs> <laughs> you're not getting away with that so ken will be fine the uh and uh ken you've been at the the seminary and you've taught as you said systematics, which for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar, although that is a term we use here at the college too for <clears throat> one branch of our courses, um, doctrine, mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, if you had to pick, just out of curiosity, the class you enjoy the most? Well, I'm an Old Testament guy, first and foremost. I haven't, <laughs> it's kind of weird. I'm the chairman currently of the systematics department. And I haven't taught systematics in years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> normally, be, well, my, my degrees are in Old Testament and that's... Uh, I, I would say much, very much my greater love. The, uh, Mike, did you have a favorite class at seminary? Uh, probably, but I don't remember. It's don't probably know. like you're, you're, at that point, it's like, who's your favorite professor kind of thing. My favorite class was Augsburg Confession with Professor Brenner. I had, because he would ask agree or disagree questions that you were going to be wrong no matter what you said. <laughs> and you learned a lot um, through him doing that way. And I just remember the nervousness of will he call on me. Yeah. And either way, I'm, I'm going to be a false teacher. So, and then he'd explain you the right thing. So, I, Nothing sticks out at me I, I, for me at seminary. It was all fine. You know, it, was all <laughs> <laughs> it was all good. I don't, uh, I don't remember thinking like one was, I don't remember dreading anything, uh, if, it, if that makes sense. How is... Uh, how is stuff at the seminary right now? You guys recently started back, I take it, where um, in person or? We've been able to continue face-to-face. Compliance has been just wonderful. I, I have to say this has gone better than I ever would have predicted had yeah. you asked me before, somehow, before this all started. Um, we, we do have our, our cases and all that stuff and our protocols in place, but so far, you know, God's been good. And before the uh, seminary, where where did you serve before? I was uh, 
counting backwards, I was for two years the director of a ministerial education program in the West Indies, known as the Caribbean Christian Training Institute, served there for two years. Uh, that was in between uh, my teaching Hebrew and Greek at uh, Martin Luther College, and it was in that our incarnation that I got to know, of course, Wade. I had Hebrew, yeah. You, you did, you did fine. I, <laughs> that was always my worst language, though. You no, know, yeah, well then, if, it, if was it was... very mathematical, and I'm not... Yeah. If it was up from there, then you were outstanding. <laughs> Hebrew, you did fine. And that was after I was on uh, the home mission field, and uh, first I started my ministry in the world mission field. I started a congregation in South Louisiana, a place called Mandeville, uh, which is uh, the first stop off the bridge if you're crossing uh, Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. And that's where I landed when I came back from our mission in Brazil where I was assigned and I was there for my not quite uh, first six years of ministry. And uh, that maybe gets to part of what we're kind of, I think, excited to talk about today, which I'll let Mike explain more in a bit. Um, but what got me uh, kind of my brain churning and I thought, it would be really good to get uh, Dr. Turney on was in the last Wisconsin Lutheran Quarterly, just three pages, um, or two and a half maybe, uh, maybe three and a half. Yeah, um, good question. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Turney has written the, the foreword for that, um, which I thought was, was really good and helpful and insightful. And I know to Mike and I brought up some themes that we end up talking about in our classes or that we've talked about together is kind of how do we approach a text? What are some things that we maybe miss culturally based on where we're coming from in our in our own culture. I know that's something we do in, in Christ and culture. Um, one of the books we use uh, in part is uh, uh, Misreading the Scriptures with Western Eyes, which has mm -hmm. its strong points and its weaker points, but um, really brings out sometimes how um, it's not that you're not getting anything out of a text when you come with your cultural baggage, um, but you're maybe not getting the whole buffet Mm -hmm. that you could. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd encourage people to check out that, that forward in um, Wisconsin Lutheran Quarterly. And then I'll throw it to Mike to kind of talk about where you see us going with this, and then we can uh, make our way into the main topic. Does that sound fair? Sure, well, yeah. Then I mean, you'll throw it back to me for the disclaimer. Okay, we'll do that. Um, so I, I don't know what our title of this uh, episode is By the is way, can be. I point out, I just noticed this. I'm sorry for interrupting. So Mike is, as always, very dressed up. Mm -hmm. um, he's in his clericals, mm -hmm. looks very professional. Mm -hmm. I think there's even gel in the hair. Yeah, there's probably something in there. Okay. So there's product, as we call it. <laughs> so I'm it. very impressed. But the jacket Mike always wears with this is, uh, what is that sports brand? That's, uh, That's Under Armour. Under Armour. <laughs> and uh, so it's like the, a nice fit. It's like, if you need you know, to talk to a pastor... Here's your guy. But you want him just but if a little bit stylish. you want to go for a jog. <laughs> or you go for a jog. <laughs> he can also do that with you. So, um, Yeah, it's like we want a pastor, but he want, we want him put together a little bit maybe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if you want to like feel better about your looks and how you're doing in life, then you go talk to Wade. <laughs> and you're like. <laughs> this is my shoveling clothes. <laughs> this is your shoveling clothes. <laughs> like, never mind. We're not going right, to go there. Ahead, we Mike. have guests. Yeah. We have a guest. <laughs> Wade. I don't know what the title of this episode would be, but maybe like, what do we bring to texts? And not necessarily just scriptural texts, but any text, any anything that we bring baggage to, and first of all, that we would have to admit that and stuff. And so I, I thought about one example that does affect the way uh, we think about the world that is not scriptural, and it's not, or it doesn't have to do with scriptures, and it's not controversial. But uh, Wade, I've said this before on the podcast that I've been... Uh, trying to wrap my head around neuroscience as much as I can for apologetic 
purposes and it's fascinating and stuff like that. And, um, the history of looking at neuroscience, you could see how the people talked about neuroscience was something that had to do with their culture. Right. And that could be fair. It could be, here's an example of how we think about something scientific, but you can also lose yourself in that lack of a better term, an analogy or whatever. So you could think about uh, the human brain and the soul and the existence of somebody in a spiritual sense, right? It's the spirit that, that is the grounding of your knowledge of your soul and all that kind of stuff. Uh, for a while there, we had a more hydraulic way of looking at the, the human body. Think of the humors or whatever, like fluids or whatever. And so the brain had something to do with the fluids or the, the human being had something to do uh, with fluids. Uh, after Descartes, it's a machine. The human being is a machine. Leibniz, yeah. Now we are, um, it's the brain is somehow, we, we talk in terms of computing, right? And storage and memory and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the neuroscience will say, that's not, it's not a computer at all right? Nor is it a hydraulic system or it's a machine, but those can be helpful, but they come with baggage, mm-hmm. right? They come with baggage and, and it be, can be hard to, to get yourself out of those analogies, out of that way of thinking, even though the original intent may have been good, it can damage the way you look at stuff and you can get pigeonholed and you can get uh, stereotypical, you can get all those things. And think about, you You hear the Elon Musk stuff or um, transhumanism stuff like this, the idea of you're going to upload your brain. and, and <laughs> yep. um, That says something about what we think a human being is, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and we, we then can take that into into text that we read. Um, you mentioned, go ahead for a second, Mike, I'm looking up the reference. So maybe just to then transition to maybe a, um, a non-controversial example in in biblical literature, uh, growing up in the West where things were pretty good, at least for Wade and I, we were not suffering I'm very not much. We, uh, um, I lived in California for a while, but inland enough, we never thought about the, maybe the possibility that our, our homes could be flooded. So for us, the flood is a picture of an ark and we learn about the animals and it's, you know, in our nursery and the giraffe looks just happy to be on the boat and stuff like that. Totally, completely ignorant of the fact that this was probably one of the most horrific things that has ever happened My to wife humanity. Went, let me, when, right? when our kids were little, I wanted to paint like a, a really like... Like, like mothers holding their children yeah. up at the highest and fighting and, off and, other people to survive one mm-hmm. more, you know. So it's stuff like that that we inadvertently sometimes leave an impression about a whole biblical story when we should maybe go, I don't think that was the intent of Moses there. So that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there's a, the book I was looking to, um, to mention, um, I think was recommended by a colleague here. Um, but it's a uh, creatures of Cain, the hunt for human nature in cold war America. And the author, um, Erica Lorraine Millam, um, and, and the book drags apart, so I, I, it's not a cover-to-cover read, but looks at um, how evolutionary theory, people take evolutionary theory, <clears throat> and then they immerse it in the culture of the day. Yep. And so evolutionary theory can come to justify survival of the fittest, um, but then on the, the flip side, um, it can come to, to justify liberal or neoliberal policies, right? <clears throat> and I think to think that we can't do that with texts and especially with the, the scriptures. That somehow we're immune from this. Is yeah. very naive. And I think what I'm looking forward to when we get to the main topic that Dr. Turney, I think, can bring in is 
um, in the academic setting, how we do this with the text with scriptures, but also um, as someone who's been in different cultural settings, right, uh, that we maybe not miss our blind spots. And I, I'll make my one reference to America, and then I won't come back to it unless you guys throw it out there. It's fair <laughs> game. Um, we just did a 10-part series on why America is losing its mind, so <clears throat> I don't want to beat up on that. But um, Christians on the right and the left in America today um, have a very American Christianity if you listen to popular discourse. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very timely for all of us as Christians, um, not to just repeat what we talked about in previous episodes, to be able to step back sometimes and say, whatever our theology is American and whatever it is, is Christian. Right? And that's something I, I very much appreciate with the forward too, because, um, and, and I think especially, I mean, the minor prophets just came come to mind mm-hmm. if, you, if you read the forward. And, um, you know, there's stuff there that's maybe a blind spot for us. And those things aren't always things that come up in the lectionary a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. pastors aren't in them as often. Um, and so, all right, we got to get do, to the main topic. So I'm going to do the disclaimer. And then, yeah, okay. We're usually much more professional than this. Because I'm in charge, but <laughs> he took the church right um, By the way, we're part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. Um, check them out, 1517.org, if you want to listen to other podcasts um, or see other materials also being published by them. It's coming close to time in April. A new book. Vocation, what's the full title? Uh, the Setting for Human Flourishing. Vocation, The Setting for Human Flourishing yeah. by Michael Berg. Yeah, yeah. we might have heard of him. We got, we got a, we're going to have a little video coming out. Forward I don't know. by Riley Sadler. Yeah. Um, we'll have a little video that we'll put out there. They did a professional video trailer, which is kind of cool. And when that comes out, um, I will be giving out prizes for the best GIFs that listeners can make out of. Mike in that video. So um, I'm just going to throw that out there. So our disclaimer, this show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize that you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. us to our main topic today i'm gonna just throw out an example and then um ken if you don't mind you can completely ignore it you can run with it you can go wherever you want to go um but maybe it can serve as a an example of how our backgrounds can be read into a text and then maybe if you can go just big picture why this topic interests you i know you and mike had talked to fair uh you know talked about it's something that is is of great interest to you um and i'm thinking partly just because you have um, in the foreword, you mentioned liberty. Um, one focus of this podcast is Christian freedom um, and what Christian freedom actually means, right? <clears throat> what it is and what it isn't. 
And so if we take, for instance, the word liberty or freedom in an American setting, when a person hears that or reads that, it definitely means certain things. Mm -hmm. And in many ways it means um, it's tied with rights, mm -hmm. right? Protection, really kind of protections from my neighbor, which is the opposite of Christian freedom where I'm free for my neighbor, right? Um, that's just an example of something we might bring into that. If that's no interest of you, no need for you, no need to comment. But what um, along those lines of what we might bring into a text and from where we bring it, anything that stands out particularly to you, um, where you'd like to go first um, on this topic that you that you might talk a little bit about already. No, that is kind of an intriguing uh, example, Wade. I uh, in talking about about. Uh, Personal freedom, personal convenience with regard to, oh, let's talk about wearing masks, non-wearing masks. You know, uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Glenn Thompson, a uh, well-known name at this institution, uh, talked about how in uh, East Asia, wh where he teaches, people wear masks routinely. And I was there during SARS. And yeah, to walk around with a mask is just not that big a deal. Nobody there considers it an <laughs> infringement on my right to have my personal space and breathe wherever I want. I mean, that you're absolutely right. That is a uniquely, I think, well, I shouldn't say uniquely, a distinctively American take on this issue that uh, nothing trumps my, my right to, to do as I want when I want to do it. Uh, what I, that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I, what I thought you were going to say is that what in, uh, in the forward to the quarterly got your attention was the individualism collectivism thing. Yeah. Uh, which also fascinates me. Uh, that's one of the uh, one axis on which you can plot world cultures. And it does connect to your observation because uh, most cultural anthropologists will say on that axis, Americans in the 21st century are off the charts individualistic. We have no idea how weird we are uh, compared to the rest of the world. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I was in Africa and had an African quote to me this uh, uh, apparently well-known proverb, I am because we are. Uh, in, in America, I'm part of the group if and as long as the group's interests coincide with mine. And the minute they don't, I'm out of here. Uh, which presents certain unique challenges when you're, for example, teaching the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of fellowship or <laughs> poses all kinds of challenges. Uh, Whereas in more collectivist cultures, which is just about everybody, what's good for the group uh, is much more prominent the way people approach decisions. Now, I, I don't like it when it's, this is sometimes framed as, well, they're more collective, collectivist, that means more brotherly love is going on, and that's a more Christian <laughs> way to look at things than the way we do. Not necessarily. <laughs> uh, individualism has its downside. That's very, very obvious. Collectivism can have its downside. Two, in other words, it can result in diffusion of responsibility so that it's everybody else's job to clean up after the consequences of my bad behavior. Well, that's not real great either, is it? I, I, not to interrupt, but uh, I have three teenage daughters at home. Um, they, just, they just yell at me most of the time. Um, but they, they, they are very much on the, let's say, the the left-leaning spectrum of the political spectrum. They're, they're more left than their father, which is fine. And, and I'm not, 
I'm a centrist. I, I'm definitely not Christian right, but I am not. I'm not a Marxist like Wade. <laughs> um, but I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> I know. I'm just teasing. But, but I they, like trolling. With they that. like to they like to point out the hypocrisy of let's just say uh, a Trump follower, a very individual whatever. But there, and they like to maybe put themselves out there as a little bit more um, progressive, and that and that's mm-hmm. fine. And I think they are, and I'm actually proud of them for for a lot of reasons until it attacks their individualism <laughs> and then be, so they kind of pick well, I, what you're saying there is that brought me to mind that they kind of pick and choose what they like they like individualism and collectivism only when it, it fits their particular <laughs> particular interest at that moment like the, the if, group is a brand more right, than if, an actual if i line. say oh, sure. if i say the group i.e. our family wants to do something <laughs> then it is about their I mean, you couldn't be more individualistic as in how can you can't control me and all this stuff. I'm like, I just want you to sit down for dinner. I mean, you know what I mean? Um, so I think and with our youth as uh, they're definitely different than than us. I mean, just growing up in, in a much, much different climate. I think they have troubles picking and choosing. They kind of want both. They don't know where they're at a little bit. I don't know if that helps with the discussion, but yeah, brought up. To, if we take the individual and the collective, um, it always reminds me of uh, the book The Shallows by um, Nicholas Carr, and it's kind of like what the Internet's doing to our brain, but it also has a, a study that was done, I think this, I'm thinking of the right book, where they had um, people from the East, so I think it was China or Japan, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> Americans, and they put them in front of fish tanks, and there was a school of fish that looked a lot alike, and then there would be a shiny fish that stands out. And then they, they tracked their eyes, right? And, and in the east, they followed the school, the group. Um, and in the west, the, the Americans tracked the, the shiny fish that, that stood out. And uh, um, which is, is great for works righteousness, although you can get work righteousness and the, the uh, Confucianism can have its own work sure. righteousness as well. But if we think about that in the, intele- uh, in the um, individual and the collective, one of the things that we talk about in Christ and culture is that, so what do we maybe miss out on in the scriptures with that? And maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong on this. I think in the West, we still somewhat get guilt, right? Mm-hmm. We really can guilt people. But because we don't have the collective, we really don't get shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a, a uh, professor here who teaches a language, German, right? And... Sometimes students will park in her parking spot because she's um, right by Aspire. And, it's an uh, odd parking spot and doesn't look like a parking spot, but it's right. hers. But wonderful professor. I've audited courses just to stay up on my German. <laughs> wonderful, so I'm not judging her. Um, but I kind of sometimes enjoy when a student parks there because sometimes she'll leave a note and it'll, it'll, and, right, it'll say, shame on you. <laughs> and I just think of the German for shame means something. More than the the English, she's not trying to be um, overly scolding like it maybe comes across in English. She's saying you're not thinking about other people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we can, you know, perhaps look at David accounts with adultery or other things, or um, all kinds of stuff with the patriarchs. And in the West, we can read that and we can say, oh, oh, look, here's a penitential psalm that that. Uh, <coughs> talks about that and we get the guilt aspect so it's Lent we should feel guilty but we sometimes maybe miss 
some of the the shame aspect. And I think, like when Paul's talking about among you, there should in a, you know there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. We really have a hard time with, and you know, we'll talk in class about how that can apply to living together before marriage, for instance. And sometimes people can really have a hard time with that. Well, how? What does that matter to anyone else? And right, Paul's kind of saying it brings shame on the the church, right? Um, am I off on that? Is there stuff that 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 maybe that brings out a fuller understanding of the scripture? Are there other examples you can think of where we maybe um, cut ourselves off from you know the the whole of what God is trying to say in in the text? No, I think you're profoundly right about that. You're you're taking us toward the whole 3D gospel thing that uh, you know you can present law and gospel as guilt forgiveness. You can present law and gospel as uh, shame and honor restored. You can present law and gospel as uh, bondage and deliverance. And uh, we are, as particularly Reformation Lutheran Christians, we are profoundly conditioned toward uh, guilt forgiveness. And I, I have absolutely no problem with that. I, I hasten to say, you know, to stipulate. Uh, on the other hand, uh, which one is scriptural? Well, they all three are, as you pointed out. And they are going to resonate in different cultures in different ways. Uh, Honor-shame cultures, you know, to have your honor restored by Christ, to, to be validated as, as worthwhile in God's sight and therefore in the height of other people, in the face of other people, can be profoundly meaningful. I had a friend who was a missionary in Japan for many years who would talk about... Uh, you know, the, the, the physical agony of Christ on the cross and with the Japanese, that just really did not register. I mean, that, that's what a man does. You put up with physical agony. What's the big deal? But when he started talking about the shame of being subjected to a criminal's death, the kind of death you would give to the absolute lowest huh. of the low, and he's hanging there bloody, gory, and naked, and, and that they get. <laughs> you know, that they get. Uh, in uh, bondage deliverance, um, those are particularly cultures where you're, you don't feel that you're in control. You're at the mercy of uh, bigger forces, the demonic and everything else. Uh, their Christ as liberator uh, from those forces uh, is particularly powerful. I always think of a, a, a hymn, an African hymn. Uh, originated in Pentecostal circles about Christ, the Lion of Judah, disemboweling Satan, leaving his carcass on the veldt for the flies. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that that's going to make uh, revised <laughs> Christian worship, but boy, I wish it would because it is is powerful stuff. And as again, as I said, all three are scriptural, and people in honor shame cultures need to be taught to reframe this maybe as guilt forgiveness, but maybe we need to do some reframing too. Yeah, I think about that as uh, probably years ago, I think there was a whole row in, in, in France about uh, headscarves. Can the public school mm -hmm. teacher head scarves? And to the American, it, uh, we, of course you could wear whatever you wanted to because of personal freedom and stuff like that. And you started to think about how the French look at that at much different than, than the American and certainly much different than both with from a Middle Eastern Middle Eastern culture. So we would look at somebody who ha is forced to wear a headscarf as, oh, this is terrible. And then somebody who would purposely wear a headscarf, we would go, why would you give up your, your freedom? What are, are you putting yourself under a patriarchal? But that culture looks at the way we dress, not just our 
as 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 uh, you know grown women or teenagers, but the the clothes that you have to buy for even little girls, you can't you can't even find anything that isn't a little bit that that's the culture of some kind of revealing, where those cultures would look at us as being anti women because we have put them up as objects mm-hmm. where we would look at that and say, you are anti women because you have made them uh, indistinguishable. We, they have no personality. They have no individuality. They're under the patriarchal system. So maybe that's one example of um, how example. we can get yeah. kind of confused about. And, and, and the point is we're blaming that other culture because they have it wrong without the of abil- ability of <laughs> saying, well, maybe we haven't, we don't have the nuance there. So, yeah. Well, let me. Do you have something or? No, I was gonna just. Okay. I'll let you can go ahead. I'd be interested thinking, in just kind of Ken's big picture thoughts. Yeah. So, and that's what I'm trying to after. So we've talked about individual, collective shame, guilt. I'm thinking about a story from John Kleinig about a woman who had been um, um, abused, and she just couldn't. She couldn't come to take holy communion. This was in Indonesia, and um, until she had heard clean, unclean, that was the one that clicked yeah. for her. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of these, what else would you add to that, that, that would be helpful for us, those kinds of distinctions or, or big picture that, um, um, as we, as Western Christians looking at scripture, what are some blind sides, blind spots that we have when we're, we're coming to the texts? No, you really, uh, your observation about clean, unclean, uh, be holy as I, the Lord, your God am holy. Uh, every confirmation kid in the United States says, well, that means be perfect. Because yep. that's what holy means. Yep. It means perfect. That is not at all what holiness <laughs> means in an Old Testament conceptual world. Uh, holy is set apart for God. What is holy is, is uniquely and distinctly God's. God is holy, and therefore, if you want, you want to get with me, you need that same holiness yourself. And that same, now, it, it, I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Moral purity is not irrelevant to that conversation. But if you think about it for two seconds, you know, there could be holy places. Places can't sin. And yet there could be holy places. Uh, So this whole concept of holiness in the Old Testament, to me, is just fascinating. It's one way you can plot a lot of uh, Old Testament theology if you think that a holy place is the Holy of Holies, that's where you are in the immediate presence of God, and nobody gets to go in there except the high priest once a year. Okay, move out a little bit. You've got the holy place, restricted access there as well. You move out a little further, and you're in the courtyard. You move out a little further, and you're in Jerusalem, and especially in Ezekiel's temple, then you get you know uh, other implications as, as you go pro- progressively further out. Well, what is the Lord saying? Uh, at the little uh, Torah seminar in uh, Exodus 19, when he says, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's not saying I want you to be perfect, although he certainly does. What he's saying is, as a priest is for the rest of the Israelite people, so you are going to be for the nations of the world. Uh, A priest represents the Israelites to me and me to the Israelites. I want you representing me to the Gentile nations and the Gentile nations before me. And this, of course, this is an assignment that they completely botch. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we, the church to whom it has been transferred, I don't know that we're doing all that much better, but uh, it it just recasts the whole thing in a different different light. And uh, big picture, I I loved your your observations before, Mike, about uh, neuroscience, the, the way that they frame certain things. 
There is a whole endeavor in biblical studies right now that John Walton has coined the, ta- the term for uh, cognitive environment criticism. And the, the word criticism, of course, is a red flag. So if you want to call it something else, we'll call it something else. But <laughs> do what we can as, uh, from the point of view, for example, of cultural anthropology and cognitive linguistics to see, can we reconstruct what would have been the mental furniture of an Israelite in the biblical period? And let's try to the extent that we can. And this is very tentative. You know, you've got to be just really humble if you're going to go here. Sure. But... Uh, can we try doing that and seeing what happens? Yeah, and I think... Um, can can I, I, to me, that point, would oh, that okay. be okay? Yep, I'm going to write down so I don't forget. Um, so that, that, that idea of holy place and stuff, I just got done teaching worship and going to be teaching it again starting tomorrow again. Uh, we had our J term and now our second semester starts. And one of the things I do... I have them take a liturgical audit, like, okay, you are litur- like you have seasons and whatever. And one of that is where are your holy places? You have holy mm-hmm. places, you just don't know. And then, and then also to say how you completely misunderstand understand the temple worship, and may I even say table fellowship in the New Testament, if you don't have the clean-unclean thing going, but also the idea that there are holy places. We have no holy places. And we, we, I always tell a story about how we have matins in our chapel here. You're familiar with our chapel setup. Mm-hmm. And uh, so early in the morning, there's a few of us that will do chapel before school starts. And this is also a, uh, in the way our building is constructed. People walk through the chapel all the time. So it's not that odd that you'll have um, two janitors with a carrying a 20 foot ladder coming behind the altar as we're doing matins, right? Which is fine. It's funny, whatever. But there's no sense of holy space in America when it comes to time. There just isn't. And I don't think you understand the divine service without understanding you are coming into the presence of a holy God who should kill you, but instead he gives you grace. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand that, you're kind of going to just be like, worship is I like it or I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Sacred space we don't have. Sacred time we don't have. Yep. And sacred time in the Old Testament is huge. You know, when uh, the time of the split of the kingdom, what's the first thing that happens up north? New liturgical up, yeah. calendar. Yep. Yep. Because this is powerful. This controls people's, uh, their interface with God. And the point, the point that I try to make, not very well, is to say, even if, even if you don't live in a culture that cares about this stuff, you are a person that is made for time and space and for holiness. And so you will, you will fill that vacuum with something. Right. Uh-huh. So, uh, so I'll say, what what is today? And they start listing off. Okay, it's the first day of the semester. Uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday week. It's this, all these kinds of things. And I'm going to say, none of you know that it's the whatever Sunday after Epiphany. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But just notice that you have, you've you've replaced something right here. Right. Our cathedral is, um, um, you know, uh, a football stadium Saturday night in the SEC, mm-hmm. or you know, you know, NASCAR race, or I don't know what, it, whatever the mall or whatever that becomes. Okay. I'm done. You go your, okay. down your way. I had, I had two things that it'd be, I'd be interested to get your thoughts about. So you mentioned cognitive, what criticism? John Walton's term is cognitive environment criticism. Okay. Can we reconstruct their cognitive environment? And I, I, I find that interesting. And I think it's helpful because you mentioned it. You know, you want to try to put yourself in the, the mental shoes or framework or furniture mm-hmm. of, the, of the day. And you said it, it takes, you know, a measure of humility, which I think is very true. 
But it also, um, not doing that to some degree can be an act of hubris as well, right? When, and I think in American Protestantism, this is, you know, um, especially in kind of a, me and my Bible Protestantism, you read the Bible simply as a book about you, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is an extremely arrogant thing to do. It's a book for you, right? That it's, it is, you are in there, right? We, we identify with the people, um, but it can be an act of tremendous laziness to I just read it and I'm David without actually knowing who David was and what his background was. And so I think it's interesting that, that when we are not to some degree trying to do something like that, I'm not saying exactly that form of criticism, there can be a lack of humility, right, mm-hmm. um, that can come in. And then connected, something I really appreciate that you brought out, and I, I just want to hit on it because I think it fits with something we emphasize a lot. When you unpacked about holiness, um, I think we often take that, we take perfection, and what's perfection? It's That's work-righteous talk, right? Or it lends itself easily to it. And so perfection is a thing to be pursued or to try to make sure we don't lose, right? Growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, um, you got the uh, um, sacrament of uh, baptism, but then later you got the sacrament of reconciliation for all the times you kind of lost the value of your baptism to some to some degree. And you mentioned, you know, how, um, I mean, radical or, or important it was that Moses says, you're a people set apart what the priests are, you are to the world. And it reminds me of Genesis with image of God and how often we think of mm-hmm, image of God mm-hmm. in just a moral way, right? It's a moral quality that Adam and Eve have. And we sometimes forget it also was God kind of putting a thumb in the eye of all human religion and saying what people say the kings are or the priests are or the things in the temples are, you now are, right? Um, And so there's a profound giftedness in the image of God. Um, We sometimes feel like, or sometimes people will talk like or picture paradise as being this law realm. And then after the fall, now there's grace, when in reality, Original righteousness was a gift. God gave it to Adam and Eve before they did anything. And I think that's helpful, hopefully, for listeners, too. I hope it's a comfort for listeners that the same is there in the concept of holiness, right? You are consecrated. You are set apart. No, you weren't the most perfect vessel in the world. You think of Mary, right? Who am I, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that is a powerful image that you bring out uh, in that connection and shows something that that we can... uh, uh, we can we can easily I mean just think of how we use holy in the culture it's always moral, um, and you know how radical it would be for Jesus to say for instance of the tax collector, not just that one went home righteous but there's the holy one yeah <clears throat> right wow mm-hmm. um, what uh as as you, as you think about um, our relationship with the text um, and you know and Luther talks about. In language like, it's, we don't just read the text, but the text reads us, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> interprets us. And I think there's a lot of truth in there. Anything could be taken too far one way or another. Um, but there's definitely a relationship with the text, whether it's we're reading it or it's mediated through preaching. Um, what stands out to you? Because um, I think some people maybe listen, and especially maybe confessional Lutherans, they can hear us say something about relationship to the text, and they almost think like, postmodern historical criticism, which is not at all what we're talking about. It's a, a very Lutheran thing. It's something Luther himself wrestles with, right? It's, it, it's why he can question James, right? Um, what stands out to you um, so far as what you mean by or what we people might 
mean rightly about um, talking about the relationship between um, text and person and um, just as we can take, take things out of the text that we can bring things in. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is go wherever you want to go with it. <laughs> no, I was uh, wait, I was cheering for your, uh, your bringing up postmodernism because now I'm about, you've just given me enough rope to really hang myself. Uh, Don't worry, we, Foucault is over there on the wall right above Marx. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you got called a Marxist before, so yeah. I guess, you know, nowhere to go but up. But yeah. I, uh, I, I, I sometimes have to uh, introduce a postmodern, somewhat postmodern take on this in my class by saying thank you for not hissing. Uh, please understand, postmodernism is not a confessional movement. Uh, it's an umbrella term for a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. some of which is just highly objectionable and some of which I personally find quite insightful. Mm -hmm. Let's remember, among other things, that postmodernism is what? A reaction against modernism. Yeah which brought us such wonderful things as Darwinian evolution and the eugenics movement two and the documentary wars. Hypothesis and Two World Wars. Yeah. Atomic yeah. bombs, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. And a couple, <laughs> couple leveled cities in yeah. Japan. So uh, to me, the, what is helpful I, and is maybe a, a postmodern take on this is it boils down to me for two words, uh, which would be acknowledge situatedness. Uh, we are situated in a certain place in time and culture. Our reading of scripture is situated, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, provided that you acknowledge it. And you acknowledge that other readings of scripture are, are similarly situated. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, I, any reading of scripture is as good as another. Now, that's obviously not what I'm saying. But uh, back on cognitive environment criticism, the situatedness often that is the most difficult to recognize is, of course, your own. Because other people, of course, have contextual readings of Scripture, culturally controlled readings of Scripture. Our reading of Scripture is just what's there, right? I mean, we are, you objectify what is, in some respects, not as objective as maybe you think that it is. Uh, an example of that is uh, that it's frequently, it's certainly not original with me. Um, Aaron and Miriam are on Moses' case because he's got a Cushite wife. Um, the text doesn't make a big deal of this. I don't know that it has to. What color are Cushites? It'd be black, right? Uh, yeah. African. <laughs> Darker than you and me. Uh, it would be fair to say, <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, as punishment, uh, what happens to Miriam? And this, the text makes a particular point of. She gets very white. She gets whiter than snow. <laughs> uh, it is almost as though Hashem is saying to her, oh, so you like being white, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> try this on for size. Uh, what is interesting, it has been pointed out, is that uh, black interpreters of scripture have a tendency to notice this. Mm -hmm. Interpreters with my level of pigmentation tend not to. Uh, just an example of how we can we can inform and I think can help each other. And so you asked, uh, you know what? I can't remember now. I'm sorry how you put it, but I think the Lord has given us a wonderful opportunity for recognizing our situatedness in in one another and what's both good and sometimes maybe not so great about it. Yeah, and I, I think um, and that's very helpful. And something that comes to mind with that is to a certain degree. We do recognize that there's, 
that situa- situatedness matters. The preacher recognizes it when he takes a text and asks where his congregation's at and where mm-hmm. are the people at and what from that text um, is best applied in law and gospel that week. That same preacher, 10 years later, might come back to that text at the same parish and pull out other things which are very true still, equally true and valid, as he applies it. Um, or he might take a call somewhere else and, and take that text differently. Um, so I think there's we have a, a certain awareness of that. The, the, the Christian has an awareness of that to an extent when they're going through something and they start flipping through the Bible for something that... Um, might speak to that, right? Um, you mentioned then the blessing of um, of acknowledging that or, or of recognizing it. Uh, I think this is partly why God sends preachers, right? Why faith comes from hearing and why we're called into the ecclesia, into the church, is God knows the danger of just me applying scripture to myself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I need my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. I need my, my, uh, my preacher, my pastor. Um, this is an example of the text reading you when you find out, oh, I had a blind spot here when someone when someone points that out to you. And it's a blessing, yeah. Then the text is reading you. That's, I think, an example of the text reading you rather than the other way around, mm-hmm. where you go, oh, now I just, that, that, now all of a sudden my eyes lifted off the pages of scripture and I actually looked at my heart mm-hmm. and said, and my mind and my worldview <laughs> yeah. You, you both like. mentioned blind spots. Can I give you my favorite Absolutely example sure. of, of this? Blind spots, this is so key. Uh, as I said, I, I served in the West Indies for a couple of years where uh, it, it was a site where uh, high school kids would come down regularly for short-term mission projects. And you, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, my predecessor there uh, told me once that usually – you. There was a fairly predictable conversation that would happen every time with one high school student from this group that uh, they would take this pastor aside and say, Pastor, we're just kidding ourselves here. What in the world makes you think these people are Christians? Mm-hmm. And he'd react with some, some shock and say, well, I mean, the first time it was probably shock. After that, he probably <laughs> had to fake it. Uh, what are you talking about? And he said, well, look at their, their families. You know, they've, very few of them are even married, and yet there are all these kids running around that came from somewhere. That, <laughs> this, is, this is an absolute disaster, these marriages and families. Christians don't behave like this, do they? And then the pastor would give the explanation that, okay, this is not an excuse, but, uh, okay, it's, it, it's wrong. They know it's wrong. There are historical and cultural reasons why this problem is endemic here. And the Holy Spirit is working on it. Uh, Great progress has been made, but this is not going to change overnight just because you really want it to. As is true in the Old Testament of many customs, too. As is true of so many things. (laughs) So he finished the conversation and and talked this person down off the ledge and convinced them that, you know, her superficial analysis of the culture did not mean these people were not Christians. Okay, then a few years later, it started happening that our teachers from our school would spend some time at a certain uh, ministerial education institution of our mutual acquaintance in in New Ulm, Minnesota. And one of the teachers came back and said, Pastor, what is the Wells doing? Those students up there, they're not Christians. And he would say... They must have been there with our class. (laughs) I, I... 
I, I asked for no information. I didn't want it. But uh, he would ask, well, what, what in the world makes you say that? And uh, this teacher said, well, they drink. And, and some of them drink till they get drunk. And they laugh about it. They're not, they're not sorry. You know, they, a couple days later, they're planning uh, to do it again. And Christians don't act like that, do they? And he would quickly find himself giving exactly the same sermonette that, no, there are cultural reasons for this. Uh, it's wrong. They know it's wrong. We're working on it. The Holy Spirit's working on it, but it's not going to change just because you really wanted to. And it does not mean that these aren't Christian young men and women. So it's one of those questions, you know, uh, who's right? Well, they both are. And who's wrong? Well, they, yeah. they both are. And what a blessing we, we are, we have in a fellowship where we can uh, maybe convict one another a little <laughs> bit with regard to certain blind spots. There's yeah, an, and I think, oh, sorry. There's I'll an apologetic oh, advantage ahead. here, too, because sometimes, we, you know, uh, I'll bring up in apologetics, oh, how could God be so, how could God do this? How could God be so angry? How could do, God do all this? And I said, that is a very middle class American thing to say. But if you're working in a blood diamond mind in Sierra Leone, your criticism of God is why has he not been to, why has he not smited the gritty, the greedy West, you know? Um, so I, and then I always end, I, God can never win with us, yeah. <laughs> right? We'd always yeah. criticize oh, that's him, great. you know, yep. like he could well, just never win with us. And I know Mike, you've mentioned in class too, but you'll sometimes people, you know, have people who will look at you like you're crazy when you talk about the Old Testament law actually being very progressive for its time because right. um, parts of it seem so archaic and cruel. And um, I know, Mike, when you talk about, you know, ancient Near East religion and how brutal it was and just the culture, you know, um, and you'll sometimes point out, God literally had to, like, say don't have sex with animals. Because <laughs> right? somebody was doing it. Right. <laughs> like, this is, he wasn't dealing with, like, a clean slate of, um, you know, Western liberalism, where you have enshrined rights and values. It's don't sacrifice your children to to idols, right? And and so we can see how even with um, uh, polygamy, which never works out well, right? <laughs> um, but yet is uh, found uh, among even God's people there. Uh, regarding the situatedness, you know, if we want to understand our own situated situatedness just in life in general, um, understand things that we maybe just take for granted, a great way is to travel, right? Mm -hmm. And you go somewhere else and you see how people do things differently and then you maybe question how you do them back home in mm -hmm. positive and negative ways. You, you have things you really miss. You have some things that you really like. When we were living in the, the Netherlands, um, when I was doing my PhD, uh, sometimes the kids, they were young when they, they came with us, um, but the things they remember often are those things that, that struck them as a... Uh, either something they really missed or something that seemed really weird, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, another is to, to read good literature that to the degree, degree that it's able puts you in the shoes of someone else so you can empathize and see the world differently. When it comes to the church, um, for the average pastor, teacher, layperson, um, what are your thoughts? Maybe what do you bring up in class on this or um, just in general? If you, you know, um, is there advice? What are ways for us to kind of broaden our experience to be able to assess some of our situatedness as we, because mm -hmm. um, it can be really hard to do, and especially in a 
in times of, of crisis where we just have so much going on already and we just start jamming things in that fit our narrative, right? And it, it can be hard to step back. Um, how, how would this boil down to, to, to maybe some practical things that we can do to be reminding ourselves of this as we engage the scriptures, but maybe also as we engage our neighbor with the scriptures? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that's an excellent question. I wish I had an easy answer. Uh, the, the main thing I want to do is affirm what you said about this being just really, really hard. It's a little like uh, asking somebody to describe their eyeball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, with the, the perspective that we've got, how, how does a person go about doing that? If it is true, as I believe it is, and this is a, another observation that's certainly not original with me, that always, always the most difficult culture for you to understand is your own. Because, as we were saying before, you don't think that you have a culture. You think that you're just dealing with objective reality. It's everybody else that's got a, a culture. Kind of the same as accents, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Perfect example. And that, in my mind, the de- definition of culture that I personally prefer, that's kind of a subset of the larger question. That uh, uh, people say language is culture. I turn that around and say culture is fundamentally a language yeah. more than anything else. But anyway, uh, how, how can you go about seeing your own eyeball? You need a mirror of some kind. And the scriptures can serve as that mirror. Uh, we don't want to short, shortchange what the Holy Spirit can accomplish this way. You know, certainly not. But uh, openness to critical reflection on why do I think that is it's fundamental, but it's just really, really hard. And uh, this is becoming easier, you know, with, uh, with communication working the way that it is now. But as I said, again, I, I think our uh, brothers and sisters from other backgrounds are just, they, they've certainly been a huge, huge help for me. You know, when the rabbis say, I've learned, I, I've learned much from my teachers, even more from my colleagues, but even more from my students. Boy, uh, have I ever found that to be the case. I was uh, what they called the World Mission Seminary professor for about the first nine years of my time at the seminary. So I spent a lot of time teaching other places. And, uh, well, I was doing the teaching. Actually, they were. I know it's, that's cliche, but lots of things get to be cliche because they're true. Uh, back to a, a blind spot issue, if I can. Um, I think it would be fair to say that in Central Africa, the prevailing attitude towards Sixth Commandment issues, um, they tend to be taken more lightly than they are among us. I mean, a public sexual sin uh, ends your ministry here, pretty much, right? I, um, there can be a conversation about how your impeccable character can maybe be restored somehow, but this is a very big deal uh. among us. Uh, Central Africa, at Central African Christians sometimes don't have difficulty seeing it that way. On the other hand, in Central Africa, uh, anger, you blow up at somebody in a meeting, for example, you're done. Your ministry's over. Uh, Central Africans will have a very difficult time looking at you as their pastor you know, ever again after that. And once again, it's one of those, who's right or who's wrong? I guess in both cases, it, it's both of us. So in those kind of situations, um, participant-observer posture where you cultivate the kind of relationship where you can say, 
what am I not seeing? How am I coming across? Please tell me and recognize that you it, you really, really got to pay your dues before you reach that point with with most people. One one more story about that, if I can. Uh, yeah. And with, so maybe it's a it's a it's a being a theologian of the cross rather than studying the theology. I mean, you got to be in it, right? Yeah. You got to live it. It's like experiential. It, yeah, okay. It's it's who you are. Yeah, yeah. It, okay. it's who you are. I don't know that you can. This would be a Western thing too, wouldn't sure. it? To, be, to think that we could en enter this through our logocentric mm -hmm. brains. But I had a conversation once with a Mexican that, um, when I was there once, that I, uh, she actually started it, okay? But <laughs> uh, we were going to play this game where you, she tells me how Americans come across, and I'll tell you how the stereotypical Mexican comes across to us. And thank God she went first, <laughs> because this was my teacher in a language class, and the bell rang. I had to leave before you know I ever had to say anything about yeah. Mexicans. Thank God. <laughs> but she told me in great detail how Americans come across to Mexicans, and super awesome. Oh, uh, <laughs> good looking. Yeah, yeah that's I right, mean, yeah. you know, and, and I thought, holy cow, you know. That it all resonated, and a large portion of it was things I would never have seen. The, the main thing that I remember, uh, my takeaway, is Americans' default assumption is that other people will adapt to us. Yep. We never, we, we're usually smart enough not to say that. I don't know that we're even conscious that we're thinking that, mm -hmm. but it's reality, mm -hmm. and it's, it's manifest in so many ways. I, uh, I, we, we don't have to dig into this one, but you were mentioning before about Central Africa and in, in America, and it, it brings up to me, you know, um, kind of contrasting sexual modesty with economic modesty, for instance, too. You know, in America, kind of with that puritanical background, we we were pretty good on. Um, I mean, even in the culture wars today, what is a lot of it about? It's about sex, right, and and mm -hmm. um, and, and and things of that nature. Um, but economic modesty, probably not so so good, right? I would guess like the apex would have to be like maybe the Scandinavians. Because they're very economically modest, oh. and they had strong Pietism back in the day. So maybe like eighteenth century, right? yeah, that's right. Eighteenth like century Scandinavia maybe was like the the perfect balance. And the most secular, you know, European country around. Yeah, so, yeah, maybe that didn't work out. So the um, but you you mentioned kind of Americans and, and thinking everybody should accommodate to us or, or however we want to put it. Um, I'll kind of make my last point, then I'll let you guys go where you want to go. And not really a point; it's just a reaction to what we've talked about. I find it fascinating. Um, a lot of the work I, I do in 16th century stuff focuses on apocalypticism, right? Mm -hmm. Luther loves to use images of apocalypticism. Flacius <clears throat> loves to use images of apocalypticism. Um, and it's very biblical, but there's also something very German about what they choose to use, mm. right? Mm -hmm. The world must be coming to an end because this event in Germany is happening. <laughs> and it's understandable at that time sure, when the world sure. was much smaller in their view that they're not thinking about all the rest of the world as they do that. Um, but if you think of the current climate in America, there is a strong, um, maybe not intentionally religious, but I think it becomes religious nonetheless, apocalypticism that's very much rooted in American events, right? If this person wins or that person wins, it, this is... This is the end of everything, and you know the world is just, um, you know, going to you know where in a in a, a handbasket, um, and it shows um, 
our tendency to read the world through our personal experience, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or through, in a more um, group thing, an American experience, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something when you travel or if you read foreign news, the rest of the world recognizes about us. Um, and Reagan, you know, perhaps personified it in like the, the shining city on a hill mm -hmm. where you take this image of Zion and, 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 and of uh, Israel and make it us. Um, and, and that... Um, That temptation um, to fall into such an apocalypticism, and right, just end times thinking. Um, I got off social media, and then I had to keep a Facebook page for um, managing the, the podcast page in church, and have on there, you know, not accepting friend requests, um, especially if your eschatology hinges on American politics, right? Because <laughs> um, I'm just sick of all the posts from every side. But um, think of what that deprives you and of your neighbor from. It almost makes it impossible for you to do kind of the self-assessment of your situatedness there. And it, it isolates you from your neighbor because you're all caught up. It's kind of like Thessalonians where they stop working because Jesus is coming, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, and it, it kind of paralyzes you. So we get kind of like a, a neo-monasticism, but one that's like highly individualistic, right? Um, and really likes, you know, um, no, hats. I mean, the... The left has its hats. The right has its hats. Um, what do you think? Uh, and this will be—I'll I'll be quiet after this. But what do you think for the the pastor, the layperson listening, um, the Lutheran? We have plenty of people who are not Lutheran listening. Christian in general. Um, we got a lot of listeners in Albania still, Mike. Did I tell you that? <laughs> so we've got Albanians. Um, but uh, but as we have listeners, uh, kind of in in a number of places. Um, what would be one big thing to remember or take away about how we see Scripture and thus the world and neighbor, um, the, the danger of losing um, the proper relationship to the text or a proper awareness um, of the context we bring to it? Well, learn Hebrew. I mean, that's the first thing. <laughs> First and most obvious. I tried. Yeah, so you did fine. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, uh, I think you you just now depicted uh, the the danger of making yourself the center of the of the universe, which uh, you know American exceptionalism makes us maybe th that whole thing maybe makes us particularly prone to. Uh, I don't know that again. I have an answer, but uh, here maybe just another really good example. Um, Philip Jenkins, church historian and observer of the church scene, whose stuff I've has been really, really helpful to me, especially in the area of, oh, for example, uh, Pentecostalism, uh, just the, the fire that's just roaring through the developing world. Well, not just the developing world, the non-Western world, mm -hmm. I guess, so that it has been said, not by, by Jenkins, but by somebody else, that... Uh, Non-charismatic and Pentecostal forms of Christianity, if present trends continue, are in danger of becoming a little tribal cult for Northern Europeans and their descendants. Now, I think that's maybe a, <laughs> maybe a slight exaggeration, <laughs> but there, you can see empirically there's some reason why yeah. people would say something like that. Okay, why, uh, humanly speaking, why is this such a global Phenomenon. By the way, uh, when I bring this up in my classes in Mequon, 
uh, jaws just drop. Well, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you know, it's not, it's not part of their reality um, mm-hmm. at all. They have they find no particular attraction to Pentecostalism. They they're attracted in other maybe pernicious <laughs> directions sometimes. But uh, I, I was on the way to uh, to Africa once to teach my Pentecostalism course, and I was talking to a student about uh, reasons for doing this. Really? They have Pentecostalism in Africa? I said, oh, my goodness. Uh, there are all kinds of publications that I could direct you to where to see what you're missing out on if you don't, you know, don't realize that. That not only is the center of gravity of world Christianity, has it, it shifted to Africa by now, as, as you guys, I'm sure, know. It, shift, it has shifted to the developing world. And it has shifted in a charismatic Pentecostal direction. So, okay, okay, humanly speaking, why is that? And you ask that question, and in certain circles, the, the answer you get is typically, well, those people, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you know you're in big trouble whenever a sentence starts with those people. But, you know, those people, hand-wavy, hand-wavy. You know, I'm doing lots of hand-waving mm-hmm. now. You, yeah. you, mm-hmm. when, you, when you have a those people sentence. Kind of how I was about the Scandinavians now that I look back. <laughs> well, Scandinavians, you know, <laughs> that's, they're a different ballgame. But <laughs> those people are all about emotion, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so they, they're... They're, they're sitting ducks for an appeal that's 100% based on emotion. And, and that's why their music is the way that, that it is and, and everything else. And I, I really think that a, a much more plausible, much more likely, and probably less racist um, explanation. Which is always a good option. I, yeah, <laughs> so uh, that's my subtle way of yeah. saying I like this better. <laughs> is uh, Pentecostals have discovered a way to communicate with oral cultures that we haven't. Um, You walk into one of our worship services, even in uh, one of our missions fields sometimes in in the developing world, it's really striking. What's the first thing that happens? Somebody hands you a printed order of service. If not in addition, a a hymnal or a Bible. Now, it never occurs to us, how many people did I just exclude Mm -hmm. from participating? Okay, Pentecostals do not have this problem. <laughs> I mean, they certainly have other problems. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, what ought this say to us? I mean, you think about that, and then you say, gee, you know, um, what things do we do that we do just because we've always done them, but we've never looked at it through the lens of, is this excluding anybody? Is this making it hard for somebody uh-huh. to participate? Um Maybe that's what needs to happen, but maybe it's not. Uh, and that that's fascinating. I think, you know, it kind of, you know, hopefully we remember that even the Christianity that has come out of Europe doesn't have to be um, as text-based as it is and wasn't always. Um, you know, you think of uh, Lutheranism producing a Bach, Lucas working carefully with Kronish. Um, you think of the medieval church and the emphasis on the eyes when you had a, a society mm-hmm, that wasn't mm-hmm. extremely literate. Um, and it is interesting that, that you know, here we have um, the divine service, you know, and it's, it's various forms that it takes on, um, that for many it wasn't text-based. They didn't have a text in front of them. And it was, right, movement, and, and you're thinking through. Um, and I guess that's not something I had thought a lot before, before you, you bring that up. Um, but, you know, that... That's something if we were really trying to reach um, a more oral culture, that's really something we could draw upon, but it probably doesn't even dawn on us um, often that, that that would be a, a barrier, hmm. you know, that 
that might uh, um, exist. All right, I said I would stop we're talking. Da, we're, we're over time, so I'll give you last couple thoughts. You want to summarize what you, like, give some advice to, we have young pastors that are listening to you. Give, give some advice on how to look Neither at Neither of us really know text. what we're doing either. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but we'll give you the final word, the final sentence, and then, Wade, why don't you bring us home? Okay. Well, I already said learn Hebrew, so, um, <laughs> but uh, learn Hebrew. Okay, now I've said it three times. I, uh, above all, I, I guess one sentence advice is be profoundly self-critical. Communicate that you're approachable and willing to be self-critical and listen. And this is not rocket surgery. I mean, I'm not saying anything that wouldn't have occurred to you already. And, but I just want to acknowledge that, once again, it's really, really hard. So treasure the people that God brings you uh, to, with whom you can sit down and say, how am I coming across? What am I missing? Let's talk. The, um, well, I think I, I, well, I know um, we really appreciate you coming down. Maybe one day we can... Uh, make the trip up there. I, we have not done much Old Testament stuff, and it would be really fun to do something Old Testament-y. Um, both of us teach uh, New Testament courses, so um, we end up more there. But I think uh, an important thing, an important takeaway for me is that as Christians set free in a world given back to us, we're freed even from ourselves, from our culture, from our context, from our baggage, um, and we're set free for um, the gospel to hear that and to have that word applied to us. Um, and if anything, this ought to make us aware of just how rich God's word is. It's a mind that never goes empty. Um, you know, it's the, the fishing pond that's always fully stocked um, out of which we can pull all, all sorts of different fish or all sorts of different treasures. And, uh, and so as we live in this world given back to us and as we face maybe the the scary prospect of having to be self-critical and step back and, and ask how we got to where we got. Um, we can remember we do so as, as children of God who have been set aside as holy ones with the righteousness of Christ. And so we can... Uh, this is where I, I, I should have given you a better signal. That, no, that was a great signal. I saw what you're doing with your hands there. Let the bird fly. <laughs> Every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down Don't care what the people are saying.